0: This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.
1: Our scripture reading comes from Luke, chapter 9, the end of chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, that is, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, just let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. All right. Wonderful. Thank you, Brooks, for leading us in that. Uh, To the Pinkneys, Thomas and Kay, thank you for uh, your courage, bravery, and boldness um, to um, allow others to be helped and encouraged through you offering your story and your space for that. That's part of the reason why I love our church family. Uh, Certainly not because we're perfect. Uh, I'm still here. (laughs) Certainly not because we're perfect. You're still here. but uh, because we're able to be honest, open, and uh, and walk with each other through the ups and downs of our imperfections, um, and as we're going to learn this morning, our hope is in not our perfection or performance, but in what Jesus Christ has done for us in His perfection and His performance. That should sound redundant. If you've been gathering with us for any time at all, this is our hope, and this is what we get to sing about. This is what we get to tell of, and preach, and share. Um, Every time we get to gather together. So if you haven't already done so, grab a Bible. Uh, Go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 9. There should be some Bibles close by underneath the seats in front of you. And if we haven't met yet, I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis Church, and really excited to be able to finish up Luke chapter 9. I've been saying Luke chapter 9 for many weeks now. Uh, This is our 46th week in our study through Luke, and it feels like all of them have been in Luke chapter 9. Uh, because we have been there now for 62 verses. Uh, But we're going to be able to close this chapter and press into chapter 10 uh, beginning next week. So today I want to talk to you about uh, when God tells you something you don't want to hear. When God tells you something you don't want to hear. Or to consider it in a different way is when your plans don't work out. Okay? When your plans don't work out. Um, That's relevant for me. Uh, I believe it's relevant for all of us. Um, but uh, I want to get us cozy in our context so that those who have over the last six days experienced some life to the point where you don't remember what we were talking about last week, uh, or if you're new with us as a way of reminder of giving us context. So over the last several weeks, we've, we've taken note together of a uh, decisive change um, in how Jesus was handling his ministry Over the course of the last several weeks, he's done a lot of teaching, he's done a lot of healing, Um, he's encouraged hundreds of people, but his focus has shifted uh, less from teaching and more about the cross and getting to Jerusalem uh, to focus solely on the cross. Along this journey to Jerusalem, the disciples, some of the disciples start fighting over who's the coolest disciple, who's who's the best disciple, who's the greatest disciple. Well, Jesus continues in making his way on into Jerusalem uh, via Samaria. The Samaritans, they reject Jesus. Um, And in response to this rejection between the Jews and the Samaritans, race comes into play and the disciples want to call down fire to destroy these Samaritans for their rejection of Jesus. Jesus then doesn't rebuke the Samaritans for their rejection. Rather, He rebukes the disciples for their uh, racist disposition as well as their lack of mercy to those um, who are rejecting Jesus. He rebukes the disciples, not the Samaritans. And part of the reason is, is because on His first arrival, Jesus showed up to save. He was here to save. He wasn't here to judge and condemn. He came to be judged, and He came to be condemned. However, when He shows up the second time, His second arrival, the second coming of Jesus Christ, as many refer to it as, uh, He will come as judge. And when He shows up on judge, on the white horse, calling things as He sees them, all those who trust in Him will be saved. And all those who trust in anything else for their salvation, they will be condemned. Well, then Jesus moves along. After being rejected by these Samaritans, he moves along to another village. And this is where we pick up our time here uh, in the text. So follow along with me as we get to work in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 57. So he was rejected, he rebuked the disciples, and he's, he's going on. Now, as they were going along the road, uh, somebody said to him, I will follow you wherever you go, right? I love you, ma'am. I'll follow you wherever you go, everywhere. Well, this, this language here is, this is uh, disciple-rabbi language, right? This is rabbi-talmid language. Um, and an ancient understanding and definition of disciple is this very phrase, okay? When you think discipleship back here in the first century, you would think, uh, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. This is a popular phrase. This is what disciples did. They found a rabbi, they found a teacher, and they would say these words, and then they would follow their leader, and they would would seek to learn from them. They would seek to be just like them. You see, a lot of times we consider discipleship doing certain things. Ancient discipleship, true biblical discipleship, isn't about necessarily doing certain things, but becoming a certain person. Discipleship has more to do with being like Jesus than doing certain things. Because a disciple, first century discipleship, which is where we glean this model from, when you said, I will follow you wherever you go, I want you to be my disciple, what they were saying is, I'm going to do everything I can to align myself with you to where I can be just like you. Not just do certain things as you do them. And as a general rule to this, the rabbi, the teacher... Would respond, follow me, come, learn from me. But let's see what Jesus says. Let's see how his reaction is, quite frankly, really surprising. We'll find it in verse 58. So, I'll follow you everywhere. And Jesus responds to that with these words. Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But me? I, the Son of Man, I have nowhere to lay my head. I'll follow you everywhere. And in this response, that seems a bit odd, right? I mean, this man is telling Jesus that he wants to be a disciple of his. But Jesus, you get the the vibe here that he's not thrilled about this guy saying that he wants to be a disciple. And Jesus is all about receiving people, right? Jesus is all about discipling people, about making disciples. Yeah. Yeah. So there must be something else going on here. Jesus knows something that we can't see at surface value here, at surface level, taken at face value in the immediate context. He knows that there's something behind this man's words that, that simply there's a disconnect somewhere. And so what's implied when you see this? I'll follow you anywhere. Are you sure? That Jesus knows this man. What's implied is that Jesus knows more than what this man is saying. You know, the the Bible teaches clearly that Jesus is the divine Son of God, that He knows the heart of mankind. He knows that down deep, that the, the man's motive for following Him, it's not just to be like Jesus and follow Him by faith because He's believing Jesus and wants to be like Him. He knows it's not that. Perhaps this man was hoping to align himself with Jesus, not to be like him, but to align himself in order to gain benefits that he can get from Jesus, Uh, like privilege, security, status, something other than just Jesus. Something else more than that. Perhaps this man seeking Jesus out of a very selfish desire, a desire uh, that is... uh, founded upon something other than just humble surrender to Jesus, humble obedience to Jesus. This man, he had a desire for something, okay, but it wasn't mainly Jesus. Jesus wasn't that main desire, but Jesus was sort of like a means to an end to his true desire. He was like a key to unlock the treasure that he really wanted, but he didn't see Jesus as this treasure. Now, contextually, remember that Jesus has claimed to be The king. He's claimed to be the Messiah, and maybe this man is aligning himself with the king, associating himself with the Messiah in order to gain what he would consider would be freedom, uh, what he would consider to be wealth, security, health, political power. What we know is this man is misunderstanding Jesus. He's misunderstanding and not getting entirely what Jesus came to do. If you look deeper than this, you'll see that Jesus is concerned with the heart of the issues. That he's not okay with this surface level, uh, these these mere words, okay? A heart, the heart of the issue is the issue with the heart. And what you see here is Jesus is going past these man's words. I love you, man. Go wherever you go. I want to be like you, right? He's going past his words and he's examining his heart. So Jesus is speaking to a heart issue here when he speaks back to this man I mean when, when Jesus says this response to this man's appearing to be sincere in his words Jesus responds to these perceived sincere words the crowds and most of us taken at face value would think what's Jesus' problem? like what's, what's Jesus getting at here? why did Jesus say this? why did he respond this way? what's, what's going on? But not so for the man that Jesus was talking with. This man essentially had his mail read aloud. He's shocked. The crowd is shocked. Jesus said it. The man is shocked, but not because Jesus said it. He's shocked because Jesus nailed him. He's shocked because he knows that he heard exactly what Jesus wanted him to hear. Jesus literally tells this guy, "Why?" you ask him, like, Why? "Why are you following me?" Are you following me to get that house that you've been looking for? Are you following me for physical comfort? Are you following me for some power, some financial security? Are you, are you following me in order to kind of align yourself with a, with a movement where you're going to become socially elite, perhaps? Why do you want to be like me? What, why? why? You don't want to be like me. You want popularity. You want, and then fill in the blank, whatever. And it's like Jesus is telling this man, in following me, You get me. That's it. That's the point. All the other things that come along are wonderful, but they they, they cannot be the foundational purpose and motive in you wanting to follow me wherever I go. Now, who knows? We don't know. It's not given to us in Scripture. But who knows if this conversation with this gentleman was a trajectory-shaping moment? Who knows that after this confrontation, this man, he got it whoa, and he gets at what Jesus is saying, and it totally changes the rest of his life. I hope this is the case. I believe it is, to be quite frank. But what we do know is that these were the most loving and compassionate, timely words that could be spoken to this man. We do know this, Let's see some more kind of interactions and weird moments with Jesus here, starting in verse 59. Well, to another, Jesus said, and this is typical for for a Pharisee, for a rabbi to say this phrase, to another man, Jesus said, follow me. All right, you remember how he called his disciples? Follow me. They dropped their nets and they followed him immediately, right? That's how he called his disciples. So here he's modeling this, calling more disciples, follow me. But this one man said, Lord... Let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say goodbye and farewell to those at my home. Let me explain to them where I'm going to be going. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, again, this just seems weird. This is strange. Like, this is odd. Both these guys call Jesus Lord. You see that in your text. But then they go on to explain that they, they want to follow him. But first, they need to go take care of some things some very significant things, some sentimental things, to say the least, some things that are time sensitive, like a funeral and a burial. But by his response, Jesus, it's as if that's not a good idea. Not right now anyway. There's something else that he's after. And we know that that, that Jesus wasn't calling these men to go do something uh, that would dishonor this dead father or that would dishonor or disrespect the families. Jesus would never lead to this end. So there must be something else going on. There's got to be something else in the works here. You see, Jesus knows something that we can't see on the surface of these interactions, of this dialogue. Now, let's be reminded here that Jesus knows these men. Okay, He knows men and women to their heart's core. And Jesus knows that down deep, this kind of pumping the brakes, this hesitation, uh, this hesitancy and reluctance, it, it's not, Jesus. It, he knows it's not merely about family. Jesus knows that, that, that this is just a simple excuse. He knows that these people are actually dishonoring their families by leveraging them and using them as an excuse to go do something else in order to be able to follow Jesus on their timetable based on their schedule according to their preferences upon their convenience. See, these people are merely leveraging this burial leveraging these goodbyes and explanations to their families as a means of approaching Jesus on, on their terms rather than truly following Jesus and by faith submitting all these sorts of things to Jesus and following them. So may you and I, may we be warned and cared for by the Word of God this morning together by hearing that there's a following of Jesus that isn't following Jesus at all. And some people call it Christianity but it's not. You see, there's a following of Jesus that's more like you trying to get Jesus to follow you. Don't call that Christianity. Call it Jeremianity. Call it something else. You're creating your own religion. That's not Christianity. You see, these people are willing to follow Jesus if it's on their own terms. So there's, there's something more going on in their hearts, something more than family, something more than funeral. There's some sort of allegiance tied up to something within them other than Jesus. And What's obvious here is that Jesus is looking for wholehearted discipleship. He's after our soul's trust, our soul's hope. He, he's, he's after our faith. He's waiting for us to say, I will follow you, Period. He's not after us saying, oh, I'll follow you until, fill in the blank there. Or I'll follow you only when I can, or or I'll follow you so long as I can get, once once this happens, I will follow you. If you follow Jesus on your terms, then who, who is your trust? And where are you placing your faith in? If you're following Jesus on your terms, who is ultimately and practically the leader in this relationship? Looking into this a little bit deeper, again, Jesus is speaking to a heart issue with these followers. Once again, when Jesus says this, all those in the crowd will be like, that's ruthless. Like, like they will be shocked, right? Like, like, you and I, when we see this at face value, to see Jesus say, come follow me, let, I need to go bury a loved one. And then for this cold response to come back, taken at face value, you see this as Jesus void of, of tenderness. He's ruthless. He's sort of this angry dictator. He's heartless. I mean, does he understand? But that couldn't be further from the truth. He's not heartless. You see, these guys dialoguing with Jesus, they knew that they got called out right here. Jesus calls their bluff. I will follow once I go back home and take care of some things. And Jesus says, no, you don't want to follow me at all, do you? So essentially, in these passages, we have the original Jesus juke, if you're familiar with that. He gets to the heart of the issue. And the point is that these men heard exactly what they needed to hear, crystal clear from Jesus. And he's going past their words, and he's going straight to their heart. This is like from Jeremiah 12, those are... The ones that Jeremiah spoke of, they're near to God in their mouth, but far from God in their heart. And Jesus, he essentially says to these guys, man, I know your hesitation in following me. I know your hesitation in committing to me. And your hesitancy doesn't have to do with your father. It doesn't have to do with your family. The question isn't, can you go bury your dad? The question is, can you bury your desire to be in control? Can you put that away? The question is, can you trust me to guide you and lead you in my timing with me calling the shots? You see, friend, Jesus isn't interested in riding shotgun with you. And contrary to the license plates in the 70s and 80s, he's not interested in being your co-pilot either. If he is your co-pilot, you're totally in the wrong seat, swap, in a hurry. See, when we come to Jesus to follow him in obedience... We only come to Him in humble submission, trusting Him to lead, trusting Jesus to guide, trusting God to teach us all that we need to know and all in His perfect timing. And these guys simply weren't interested in this. They were were very interested in following Jesus on their terms, and they had created a Jesus in their mind that they could follow yet without faith. They had a Jesus that they knew that they had created in their mind that they could follow this sort of Jesus without really having to surrender all things, just most things. But the fact of Scripture is following the real Jesus requires faith. So so they're essentially wanting to follow a Jesus that they had drawn up as a figment of their own imagination, not the real Jesus. Friend, do you see just how very dangerous this is? Do you, do you see how easy this is to do? I mean, at first look, these words appear to be harsh and cruel, but the more that you look at them and understand who Jesus is, these were the most loving and compassionate, needed words that Jesus could have spoken to these men. And again, just like the first character, who knows if, if this might have been a trajectory altering moment with Jesus, but we're not given this information. And I sure hope they responded to him in faith, I face value all these people that Jesus is working with. At first, they appear to be faithful. They appear to be sincere to Jesus. But when you really get down to it, their hearts are divided. Their hearts are divided in their commitment to Jesus and to following Him. And most of my life, I, I read this story as Jesus being this cold-hearted, stiff-arming, like just brute of a guy, uh, just handling these heartless, uh, faithless, careless wannabes in the right way. But as I began to consider the nature of the real Jesus, I thought about me. I thought about Peter. Most of us know the story I'm going to share with you about Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus. And as I realized this, I realized, man, this is a picture of us. This is a picture of you. This is a picture of us as we follow Jesus on this narrow way, as he called it, his way. You know, Peter says something similar to these these guys uh, in Matthew 26 and verse 33. He essentially says, i want to follow you anywhere. I'll die with you before I deny you. I'll always be faithful to you. Though, Though others stop following you, Jesus, I will never stop. I give you my word. Essentially, Peter, he's pledging his allegiance. He's pledging his faith to Jesus. But then minutes later, a few hours later, Peter curses Jesus and swears a public oath that he never has even talked to this guy Jesus before. He doesn't know him. He's never seen him. He's never talked to him. He doesn't even know what you're talking about. And Peter does this not just once. He does this three times in the same night, right after Jesus told him he would. following the death of Jesus, following His resurrection, Jesus does not return to find Peter and stiff-arm him. He doesn't come and point His finger at him. Jesus doesn't track down Peter and give him the three. Not once, not twice. Three times, Peter. told you. That's not how Jesus treats Peter. After his resurrection, he finds Peter and he pursues him. He loves him and he perfectly forgives him. You see, his commitment to Peter and his love for Peter hadn't changed at all. He knew that Peter was going to deny him three times. He went to the cross in order to take care of those three denials and a lot more in order to forgive Peter post-cross. In the same way as Christians, when we have the best intentions to follow Jesus, and only Jesus, the real Jesus, we have the best intentions to follow Jesus with all our lives and then later deny Him, 2 o'clock this afternoon, lose faith in Him, doubt Him, want to go our way, do our thing, place ourselves as sovereign over our lives and no longer submit to Him with holy allegiance. When these sorts of moments take place in our life each day, because the cross, He doesn't stiff arm us, He doesn't show us the three, He doesn't point His finger at us, He doesn't ignore us, rather He relentlessly pursues us and loves us and perfectly forgives us every time without fail. He earned this privilege for us to receive through the cross and the empty tomb. And this is the truth of the gospel. And this truth of the gospel is meant to motivate us as Christians to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. The unending love of Jesus for us, when our hearts are divided, it's not meant to let us drift towards complacency, apathy, disobedience, laziness in our Christian walk. It doesn't give us a license to go act however we want to act and do whatever it is we want to do because after all, we're going to be forgiven. This is a gross misunderstanding and it's not Christianity. And if it creates this type of response in us, we're not living in the reality of just how sinful we are and what Jesus Christ endured to offer us forgiveness. This perfect forgiveness that's found in Jesus is meant to create in us a craving and a longing to change, to be like Him, and to follow Him with all of our lives. Not to be more careless in how we live our lives. The reality of of how Jesus responds to these people, people who claim to be ready to follow him with undivided hearts, is that he wants them and us to understand that there is a great cost in following Jesus. In many of your Bibles, there's a heading even above verse 57 that says, the cost of following Jesus. That's been edited for our sake as we read. It's not a part of the original manuscripts of the New Testament, but it's there because that is what people view this as, is Jesus telling us, this will cost you something. I want to follow you everywhere. It will cost you something. I want to be like you. I want to be with you. Do you really? There's a cost. Jesus wants us to realize that that we can't bring all of our hopes and our dreams and our our schedules and our desires and then just tack Him on the end of all these things. Add Him to the end. You see, there's, there's no way that you can be a follower of the real Jesus, say a prayer, get baptized, and then go do whatever you want to with your life. That's not Christianity. Call it a different religion, but it's not Christianity. Jesus being Lord of your life, means that He receives the permission, the invitation, and the right to do whatever He desires with your life. He's calling us to lay down our lives at His feet and to pledge full allegiance to Him. This is basic Christianity. It's not over the top. It's not radical. It's not extreme. That's not being very committed. That is Christianity 101. And quite frankly, He deserves all of this from us. He has the right to demand this of us. He has the authority to demand all of our lives. He's proven to us that He loves us. We don't need to to question this about His intentions. He's proven that He loves us. He's proven that He's good and trustworthy through what He did for us in the cross. My goodness. And He's proven to us that He is God through His resurrection, defeating death and the grave. So, Jesus calls his followers here to live lives where every decision that's made is set before him in submission, and where we joyfully invite him to change anything about all of this at any given moment, even if it hurts, and heaven forbid, even if it doesn't make any sense. From our reading last week in Jeremiah 10, it says, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not correct or is not in himself that it is not in a man who walks to direct his steps. Correct me, O Lord. Following Jesus is having faith in Him, trusting in Him, hoping in Him. It's trusting Him to the point where we submit our lives to Him regardless of what it is that He may ask of us. And again, this is Christianity. Anything else is simply a mere religion that you've conjured up in your mind and your heart that that you're cloaking as Christianity. But Christianity is following Jesus. It's Him having the permission to correct you. It's responding to this correction and not excusing this away. And this is part of what, what we're to do when we go to Scripture. We don't just go to Scripture to, to feel better. We don't just go to Scripture, though you, you do, you should. You don't just go to Scripture to be encouraged, though you should be encouraged when you open Scripture. One of the main reasons we go to scripture is because we're wrong. We're wrong so, you are so wrong. So often, if you knew how wrong you were about things, you would never open your mouth. Your parents didn't tell you that. I'm glad I can tell you that. We are so often wrong, y'all. Man, even when we're right, we're often wrong in our motives. We're wrong and we're subjective. We're careless. We go to Scripture because it's right. It is objective. And we take to it all it is that we're believing and feeling and fearing. And we let it speak into our subjectivity of all these things. Teaching us to align ourselves with what is true and steadfast. That's why Jesus is considered the rock. We go here to build our lives upon something of substance Otherwise, as Jesus says, we're building our lives on sand. When storms come, when this is your instruction, you remain, you stand firm. But when storms come and your life is built on your own reasoning, your own intelligence, your own leanings and and inclinations, it's a house of cards and it just collapses. This is part of why we go to Scripture And Jesus has been very clear about this all through his ministry, even through what Luke gives us. It was just a few verses ago where Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. But a a significant issue begins to surface in our lives when we try following Jesus without first denying ourselves. There's a reason Jesus gives us this order. Deny yourself and follow me. He doesn't say, follow me, and then deny yourself. If you're waiting to to deny yourself and you're wanting to hop on the road of following him, you're never following him. You're still following you because you've yet to deny yourself. You've got to forget about yourself if you're going to follow Jesus. And that is so difficult, perhaps more difficult in this generation than it's ever been because we think so highly of ourselves. We've prized the individual To such an extent that it's hard to receive instruction. It's hard to deny ourselves. We're so focused about what makes me happy. Who are you to tell me wrong if it makes me happy? And this is our logic because we prize the individual. We prize the experience. We prize each other in such a way. And Scripture doesn't. Scripture says forget about yourself. Deny that aspect of you. And it's not saying those things don't matter. It's just they have to take on a different light. Again, I think what happens here is when Jesus gets at the heart of the issue with these men, I think they go bury their dad. I think they go explain things to their families. It's not that Jesus didn't want them to go do these things. He knew that they were leveraging that as a reason to not go do it. To not follow it. And so now, having been revealed their heart's motive and what it really means to follow Jesus. It's as if Jesus says, okay, now with that humility present, with that trust in me, now go and bear your dad. And I'm with you. Now go explain things to your family. Let's go. It's going to be an awesome ride. Because after all, in the very next chapter, in the very first verse of chapter 10, we see that he has over 72 disciples that he sends out. Where do those come from? Maybe these same people. As Christians, our hearts should should be in a place where we see the radical love that Jesus has for us in His life and His death on the cross, and we embrace the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh, that He's King of kings and Lord of lords, and we actually do the thinking to get to the heart of what those phrases mean, that if He is King of kings, if He is Lord of lords, then that means something. It's not just something we say or put on a banner in some of our churches. It's not something that we have on our coffee cups or T-shirts. These phrases mean something. If, he, if you know He loves you because of the cross, and if you absorb that fact intellectually and to your heart's core, that He is the King of kings, that He is the authority above all other authorities, then this will bring you to a place of absolute submission where He has the right to require our full allegiance, to trump any of our plans at any given moment. Because see friends a Jesus that can't demand anything from us and change our plans and dreams is not an accurate understanding of the real Jesus of scripture. It's a phony domesticated imaginative Jesus that you've created. Because a Jesus that can't ask anything of you, a Jesus that can't demand something from you is not a Jesus that can save you. But it's one that you can follow. You can kind of determine the rules but don't call it Christianity. Now, I want us to consider a few questions in closing as we examine our hearts this morning. Some questions. Does the way that you live your life prove to others and show others that Jesus is Lord and that He is the authority in your life? Does the way that you live your life prove to others that, that Jesus is the authority over your life? Do you live your life and do you strive to live your life in accordance to his word? Can Jesus change your dreams without your permission? Can Jesus change your plans Anyways, I'm concerned that we want Jesus to write our eternity story, but not the story of our lives today. We got that. He can't be trusted with my, my life today. I trust Him eternally, you know, for eons and eons, but my 74 and a half years here, can you really trust Him with that? I mean, I'll, I'll trust Him spiritually, for sure, but not practically. No, no, no. What if you never get married? What if you never have kids? What if you never get healthy? What if you never accomplish your hopes and dreams that your heart is set on? I want all those things to happen if you want them to happen. I want them. I'm pulling for you. I want those things to happen. But what if they don't? Is Jesus enough? Do you trust him? Is is he enough in your heart? I mean, what, what if that one thing that you so want to change, what if it never changes? Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough for you to have joy and peace in this life, regardless of how difficult you feel your life is? Or do those things have to happen for you to have joy and peace? Or is he enough? Is he enough joy for you so that regardless of how you're treated, you treat others with genuine kindness, tenderness, and grace? Or do you need these things to happen first, and then you can begin treating others differently? Is Jesus enough? You see, friends, when Jesus came to earth to live his life and to die on the cross and to beat death for us, he essentially shouted to all humanity and creation, I am forever Enough. I'm enough. You'll never be happy and content until you see that Jesus is enough. Everything else is a false hope. Everything else will not deliver. You can have it, but you'll still not be happy. You still will not be content. The things that you chase after, thinking, if I can just have this, I'm going to matter. If I can have this, then... You can have them, and then that thing still doesn't take place in your heart. Is Jesus enough? Friends, there's no one that can be trusted more than Jesus. He can be trusted. He loves you, and he's got a plan for you that honors the Father, and that will bring you a lot of joy. But you've got to trust him. You've got to trust him. As we press into communion, I want us to think about something here. You know, the reality is, no one in here does this perfectly. Nobody. No one gives Jesus perfect allegiance all the time. Nobody believes Jesus 100% of the time. No one trusts in God's timing with joy every time. And the people in our story this morning, friends, they're pictures of you. They're pictures of me. I mean, our words are to Jesus, they don't match what our heart is feeling and saying. We sing songs. We say things to one another in Christian encouragement. We want them to be true. We we say them because we know they're accurate, but our heart is often very disconnected. So often, our commitment to Jesus is half hearted, our motives are corrupt. And honestly, we want a Jesus who's going to submit to us. That's what we're after. Because practically speaking, we're the ones who truly know what's best. And our frustration comes when our things don't happen in our way and in our timing to our liking. And in our relationship with Jesus, our heart truly desires Jesus to submit to our agenda. Jesus, would you just get on with it? When will God give me a break and just follow me for a change? Let me write the rules. Follow me. This is what we say, not with our mouth, with our heart. God, would you just get in this box and follow me? I will use you when I want to. Otherwise, you just trust me and make things work out, okay? We want Jesus to submit to our timeline. We want him to submit to our desires. We want him to submit to our expectations, if he knows our thoughts already, if he knows what we're expecting already, just make it happen. Psalm 37:4, it's on our coffee cups. Trust in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. I'm trusting. Make it happen. Give me my desires. Come on. We believe that we know what's best. And we go after this with poor motives. And I'm afraid this has gone on too long and it's too true for us to ignore any longer. For Christians, so much of our walk with God, we're constantly having these divided hearts and intentions. So, every week, we get to come to this time and this place where we can remember jesus christ that he never messed up one time that he did the things that we're called to do perfectly so we're coming to communion now and we're remembering that jesus always lived perfectly that he was without sin and he committed all of his ways and he submitted to the lord completely 100 percent of the time He was entirely, continually, and completely faithful to God's will. He always said the right thing at the right moment. He always did what what he was supposed to do. And he holds us as an example of what it looks like to submit and trust even when things in life are difficult, like being crucified for people that hate you. That's difficult. And yet he submits and he obeys. So we come to a table today remembering Jesus and his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection. His work for us, his work as us, is the source of our true hope. It's the motive for our obedience, and it offers us unending forgiveness that we can receive when our hearts are divided and not the way they should be. So Christian, let's come to the table, take a deep breath, and experience a great relief. Now, this doesn't create carelessness. It creates worship. And now we can leave this place today knowing that we're going to fail, knowing that we're not going to do it right, but somehow through what Christ has accomplished for us, it never changes the way God looks at us, and it should create even somewhat almost of a recklessness in in, in doing things for Him and, and, and beginning to open our mouth, knowing that our words aren't going to be perfect, but He can even use these things in ways that are accomplished things eternally for others' good and our own. So we come remembering Jesus and His work for us. What a joy it is to celebrate His perfection, His work, His sacrifice so that we can be forgiven. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for your boldness in how you handled these men, the people in this text. Thank you for teaching us through through their words and through your own what discipleship looks like, what it is to look like, and the proper motive for it. Lord, I pray that you will humble us. That you would make us more dependent upon you. And often that comes at great loss as you sweep things away that we place our hope in and it hurts. Man, it hurts. Lord, we believe and have experienced time and time again that it's worth it. Being reminded of of you being enough. Lord, I do ask that you humble us. I believe that you are in many ways. Lord, teach us what obedience is. Give us a tenderness to your word, and to your instruction. Help us respond to your correction, to your conviction, to your instruction, Lord, with humility and with obedience. Help us not do as what is so typical of man, to blame shift, but Lord, help us look at the cross and see that there was blame shift on the cross. Jesus taking all of it upon himself that we deserve. Help this create in us thankfulness, humility, gratitude, worship. Even now as we approach your table, Lord, something that is extremely symbolic to your work, what you've accomplished for us, would we worship, would we be thankful, would we be humble, would we be grateful as we come and remember your saving work for us. God, change us. Help our divided hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.